I think that we are sinking as a society. People are getting smaller and smaller. If you look on the growth charts, they would say, no, that's not the case. People are getting larger and larger. Uh, children are growing bigger these days. But that is not, of course, what I'm referring to. I think we're talking about a shrinking in the area that self has become the god of our culture, of our world. Our, world's, our world is constricting into small circles where the cause for which we live is no bigger than self. And Christians are very much affected. Now we're helped by the fact that we have at least something of a long look. We have God and we have heaven. They are vision-enlarging ideas without any question. But often the rules by which Christians play, the cause that really drives them, to make this earth is to make this earth and our time here an enjoyable place from which to enter heaven. And so the, the promotion of self and self as the motivator really is at the heart, I think, even as Christians, of what we, how we often think. That this world would become a nice place from which to enter heaven. One subtle justification that we see is that self is expanded slightly. We must love if we are followers of Jesus Christ, and so we expand a little bit and we draw the circle around not just me, but around my family. So my family is at the core of everything that I think and everything that I want and the cause that drives me in this life. Or maybe it's friends or something of the like, but the result is that the goals of life and the focus of life become much smaller than God intended them to be. He created us to have a large vision, to have a great cause, to have a future hope, and to drive our lives toward it. But in a culture that is saturated with self, where self rules on the throne, there is a tendency to constrict our soul to focus on something very small. It would be like looking over a great, beautiful valley. We had that opportunity yesterday, those that were at the camp, to, to canoe down a beautiful river, the St. Croix River, just to see the beauty of God's nature. But it, you know, it really would be a pretty miserable ride if all you did on that whole canoe trip was simply look down at your feet. Never lifted up, never saw those trees lining that river, never saw the, the uh, banks and the sand and the uh, birds that were there, the eagles that we saw, and birds I don't even know what they're called that we saw. This amazing uh, trip yesterday. But it wouldn't be any fun to just look down in the boat at your feet. But that's what many, I think, in our culture and even many Christians are doing. Their whole life is oriented just toward them. There's no great cause. Yes, there's a future hope of heaven. Yes, there is a relationship with God. But there's no great driving cause. We need to serve a cause that's greater than ourselves and our families. And as we do, we find that that really is the path to true joy. It's not looking down at your feet and adoring your feet in the canoe. It's looking up and seeing others and a greater picture than yourselves. We need to orient life toward expanding the glory of Christ through our love for others and the proclamation of the gospel. And I think that is one thing that Paul would say to us in this passage of, in Philippians 1. Paul was a big cause kind of man. And you know what? He took it out on his body, didn't he? It wasn't an easy life for him. 
But he was a big cause kind of individual. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, we see very clearly that he saw beyond himself, I thank my God every time I remember you. The challenge is for us in this self-oriented culture to even think about other people. But Paul says every time you come to remembrance, it is a source of joy for me. Other people were a source of joy for him. They weren't just a project. They weren't just people in the way. They weren't just a crowd that you wish weren't there. They brought him joy. Now there's a reason for that, of course. But he saw beyond himself. And what was it that made him rejoice? Verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm always thanking God for you because we are partnering together in the dissemination of the gospel. The cause was so great to Paul that it motivated him to live his life oriented toward the cause of Christ and it led to joy in his relationship with other people who joined him in that great cause. There was a community here. It's not just Paul and Paul alone. It's not him looking at his feet in the canoe. He's lifting his eyes and he's rejoicing in what he sees around him and primarily, particularly here in relationship to other people. It was a partnership in the gospel. The chapter that follows, or the text that follows in this chapter is filled with the prayers of Paul and we think primarily there at verse 9. This is my prayer, Philippians 1.9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I think that really, though he's speaking here of believers, has everything to do with the cause of the gospel. He wants to see them expand and to grow and to become the people that God wants them to be. And that drives Paul. There's a passion in his heart. There's a joy that God has given him because he is focused on the work of the gospel and the growth of the believers who come to know Jesus through the witness of Christ's people. And I would say that as we look at this chapter and if we consider it with any honesty, we need to realize that we are not here on this earth to ease our way into heaven, to make the passage into heaven a smooth one. But we are here rather not in self-interest, but we are here in the interest of Christ and His cause. We are here to spread the glory of not self, but the glory of God. We do that as we long for the spiritual growth of God's people, so we would be community-oriented that way, and we do that as well by seeking the salvation of those who do not know Christ. The cause is the glory of God. The field is the world, and there is joy in it because we are doing what we were created to do, not to simply look at self-interest, not to keep our eyes glued to our feet in the canoe, but to lift up, to see the whole picture, to see the whole river of history and the cause of Jesus Christ, and to live in that direction. There's joy in this. There's a passion in this that will come. And I ask us, in light of Paul's instruction, is this the cause you serve? Does the gospel mission dictate your actions and priorities? Is the work of Christ all in all to you? That's not an easy question. It's not 
one that can be asked without a great level of discomfort, I don't believe, in the parts of God's people in my own heart. But there are God's people who evidence this very clearly. And we'll look at verse 12 and following to see what are indicators that we do have the cause of Christ as primary, not the cause of my family. The cause of Christ as primary at the heart and the hub of how we relate to family and to our own individual life and friends and the like. But I think of the story told of November 1953. Evangelical Colombian pastor and his son, Bernardo, they were confronted by hostile Colombian soldiers. Pastor Perez and his family knew quite well that serving Jesus Christ was risky business in the state where they ministered. Because for the past nine years, Christians had been subjected to intense persecution as the ruling conservative party continued to sanction and even encourage the suppression of evangelicals throughout Colombia. Dozens of believers had been burned, killed, Buildings burned, but the Perez family continued to labor for the advancement of the gospel. Why? Why would they do that? Well, as they were confronted by these soldiers, the soldiers seized young Bernardo and hung him by his thumbs. Writhing in ag agony, Bernardo was interrogated by the soldiers who said they would release him if he confessed that his family members were really bandits. Such a confession would have given the soldiers, of course, then the right to imprison his family, and he realized that, but more than anything, he refused to lie. Before they cut him loose, the soldiers demanded that he confess to being an evangelical. The boy confessed his allegiance to Jesus Christ. The soldiers obtained a similar confession from Pastor Perez, warning him that if he was arrested again, he and his entire family would be killed. Not a seed of this wickedness will remain, they told him, and they left. Well, what would you do? I mean, really, what would I do now? It depends on what's in your heart. It depends on the cause that drives you. If the cause is self, there's no question here what to do. You pack up your bags, you go somewhere else, and you keep your mouth shut. Six months later, on May 19, 1954, a mob of angry Colombians broke into the Perez home and shot Pastor and Mrs. Perez to death. They didn't quit. They didn't keep their mouths shut. They stayed where they were and they continued to proclaim the gospel of, of Christ. The mob proceeded to slash their seven children with machetes. Bernardo was also killed. Bleeding profusely from wounds to his arm and neck, one of the Perez boys named David managed to drag his younger sister outside the house across the yard and over a fence. But as they tried to escape, a crazed man gave chase, disconnected David's grasp of his sister's hand by severing her arm from her body just above the wrist. David ran, and he was the only member of his family to escape that nightmare alive. What would you do now if you're David? The cause that drives you, the passion in your heart, is really going to come out. Well, five years later, David graduated from a Bible institute in Columbia. And he became a pastor. 
he became a minister of the same gospel for which all eight members of his immediate family had been killed. Why would anyone be moved to do something so unnatural? I believe the answer is found again in the fact that David Perez knew the joy of proclaiming the gospel. He lived for a cause that was bigger than himself. A cause that was larger than his family. A cause that drove him to live very unnaturally in a self-oriented world. He had come to understand that declaring the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the lost is a noble cause but not only a noble cause, a source of joy in his own heart. The willingness of this young man to walk back into the teeth of the enemy was clear evidence of how deeply he rejoiced in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. We are not called as Americans to date, to suffer in such a way for the gospel, to suffer physical persecution for Christ's cause. Some are rarely but that's not generally our lot at this point, at this stage in history. And there's no particular shame in that. But do we even begin to genuinely rejoice in the advancement of the gospel? There are some who rejoice in the, in the advancement of the gospel at the cause of life. Do we know the joy of pointing a lost soul to Christ? Do we know the joy of investing money and effort in the gospel enterprise? Do we know the happiness which comes from realizing that a lost soul has been redeemed and is growing under the teaching of God's Word? As we look at Philippians 1, it is these kinds of truths that pervade Paul's thinking. His life is dedicated to the cause of Christ crucified and risen. And what matters to him is disseminating that gospel at any cause. And I think what comes out here is we're seeing Paul lay his heart out before us. And we have a chance to analyze it and to see what really makes him tick along these lines. And I think what we find, first of all, beginning at verse 12, is this genuine love for the gospel supersedes external opposition. If the love is great enough... External opposition is not a deterrent. It's not something anyone invites, but it's not a deterrent. As we come to verse 12, we must understand that the great apostle to the Gentiles has been sidelined here. He is stuck in a Roman prison. Falsely accused and seemingly forgotten, he is a player on the bench. He encourages the Philippians in verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now we could write Paul off and just say, well, here's the eternal optimist. Or we could say, maybe there's something deeper here to Paul, and I think that's the case. It is the cause of Christ, it is the glory of God as it's spread through witness and as it's shown itself in the life of growing believers that's at the heart of what makes Paul say what he says here. I want you to know, please understand this as you think about me here in prison, that what has happened to me, I don't think that's merely a reference to imprisonment. They knew about that, but maybe he had been moved from house arrest, to barracks with the soldiers. There might be some other things here that have happened to him they know about we don't. But whatever happened, it seems to have been 
interpreted by the Philippians as something bad. No, says Paul, don't take this as bad. It's good. The circumstances which have caused you alarm have served to advance the gospel. How could this be? How can you take an active evangelist off his tour, stuff him away in a prison, and expect any good to come of it? When I say evangelist, by the way, we're not saying American evangelist who's out there, it would seem many times, with ulterior motives. We're talking about evangelist, a church planter, a person who went into towns and spoke the gospel to people who had not heard it and saw churches established. How can you take a man off that track and say that this is advancing the gospel? Well, as verse 13 made clear, as a result of his imprisonment, it had become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So you know what? This is good. This is good. The palace guard at this time, a sizable contingent of Roman soldiers known as the Praetorian Guard were stationed in the city of Rome for the protection of the emperor. They had a barracks in the city next to the imperial palace. And uh, I think uh, the King James just translates it palace, and that's the reason. They were next to the imperial palace, and they had, a camp, they had a camp outside the city on the north side of Rome. When Paul was arrested, he became the responsibility of the prefect or commanding officer of the Praetorian Guard. And even if Paul was under house arrest, we're not sure entirely, but commentators agree that he would have been chained to the arm of a Roman soldier. So as soldiers served their watch, Paul did not view them as hindrances to the gospel. Here is this soldier keeping me from going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel. He didn't see that as a hindrance. He saw these soldiers as men in need of Jesus Christ. Paul, that says to me, was not confined to his scheduled itinerary as a missionary. For Paul, all people needed Christ and if God put him next to a Roman soldier, then that Roman soldier needed the gospel. Sometimes missionaries do not think this way, and I would include us as well as missionaries. But I heard uh, recently of a missionary who had served for several years, I believe on the, uh, I, I don't remember the country, but for several years he had served the gospel of Christ in a foreign country. He came back to the United States and the pastor asked him, when is the last time you've shared the gospel with an unbeliever? It had been months. See, that missionary's thinking was the mission field's out there. If I'm off the field, I don't need to share the gospel of Christ. And to the man's credit, he was convicted in his heart and he went down to the local gas station and sat there until somebody started talking to him and he could strike up a conversation with them. Where there are people, there are opportunities to advance the gospel. And if we think in this way, it doesn't matter what situation we are placed in, there's an opportunity there, whether it's somebody who might come to our church or it's somebody on vacation in another state or country. He was in chains for Christ, not on the preaching tour. Now that doesn't mean that everyone was saved that he spoke to. I don't think that's the point of verse 13. That throughout the whole palace guard, everyone was saved. I don't think that's what he's saying. But what he is saying is that the gospel had been proclaimed. Many soldiers came to realize that this imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. And it tells us that Paul lived as an example of the message that he preached. 
We don't want to read too much into it, but our minds begin to wander and to question and to think. As these soldiers saw Paul, they had to come to the conclusion that this criminal is some kind of strange criminal. This is no regular thief. This is not, I mean, who is this guy? He, is, he just acts differently than the guy we normally watch in here. They began to watch and somewhere they began to listen as Paul shared the truth. So it was clear to the Praetorian Guard, it was clear as it says here in the text to everyone else that he was in chains for Christ. Others besides the soldiers who came to converse with Paul while he was in prison, the word was spreading. He was here because of the gospel. The present circumstances carved out an opportunity for Paul to preach, and he rejoiced. Verse 14 says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Here's a second way in which the gospel was helped. Not only was he able to proclaim the gospel to the soldiers that were imprisoning him, others were hearing the message because of his imprisonment, but also there were others who had been encouraged to speak of the word of God because of his difficulties. It emboldened his fellow laborers so that they were courageous. The Greek is interesting here. It's something like abundantly to dare. They dared abundantly to proclaim the gospel because of me. There was no change in the level of danger. If anything, it was heightened by Paul's imprisonment. If they identified with him, there would be a cause for them to be identified with the wrong side and to be imprisoned themselves. But Paul's example spoke louder than that danger and they were encouraged by it. When leaders are silenced by the majority, followers tend to give up hope. You might expect the persecution of Paul to translate into a despondent inertia on the part of his followers, but it did not. His trial resulted in the very opposite. As they heard of his trials and realized the great evangelist had been sidelined, passion was struck up in their own hearts. God stirred it up to pick up the pace and to carry on in Paul's absence. That's exactly what the opponents of Paul hoped would not happen, isn't it? Hoping to stifle the gospel, Paul ended up in prison ultimately. He was never in prison for merely preaching the gospel. He was always in prison because people falsely accused him as a troublemaker. But his enemies were thrilled that for whatever reason, he was in prison and the mouth was stopped. But Jesus told us that nothing can stop the gospel. The gates of hell itself cannot stand up to the assault of people who love God's truth and proclaim it. Nothing can stop God's word. Church history is a recurring account of people who have died for Christ, but it is not a depressing history. It is a victorious history in which the truth triumphs against all odds. There are some factors still alive in our culture that keep us a people with some nobility. There's a noble and great history that we have on the pages of history when it comes to wars that we have faced in times that our country has stood up to oppression. Certainly many wars that we'd question and things that were not all that we'd like them to be, but there were times when this country has stood up to oppression and there are people who have died. That affects a culture. There are people that have laid down their life for the cause of freedom. 
And there's then a thanks for the freedom that we have, which we're fast losing as those who have fought and served in wars are dying. And we have generations now that have not known nothing of war. There's something that ennobles a people when they know that what they have has cost life. And so it is in the Gospel of Christ. We are not looking at a depressing history. We know that the cause has taken life. That the dissemination of the Gospel costs people dearly. But it's a glorious history because it's continued to advance the blood of those who have shared the Gospel in hard places. And so, Christian, always be aware, God may well be knocking open a door of witness with the trials of your life. And once again, we're reminded by Paul's example that the key to life is not what happens to you, but how you look at what happens to you. In man's eyes, nothing was going right for Paul. Oh, Paul, we're so saddened to hear of the tragic end of your ministry. Was how some took it. No, says Paul, wait a minute. I see an open door here. Look, it's an open door. It's an exciting door, and people are moving through it. Paul so loved the gospel, and here's the point, that external opposition simply could not quench his joy. I don't know about you, but many times my joy for the gospel has been quenched by opposition. I can think of people and places and times where it's been quenched. You share the gospel with all of your heart and soul with someone who just turns a deaf ear, a blind eye, doesn't want to hear it. On some occasions I've had people close to physical abuse, I think, at times. I don't think I've ever been obnoxious with the gospel as God has helped me to that end. But there's been times when you just talk to the wrong person at the wrong time and they let you know it. And I know there's those times that's throwing cold water on the Spirit. If we really have as our driving cause the gospel of Christ, it will take us above external opposition. That doesn't mean that we won't continue to fear in in a certain sense of the word, but it means that we will work through our fear and will continue to proclaim the glories of God to a world that doesn't necessarily want to hear it. The external opposition won't stop us. But I think there's a second aspect here, beginning at verse 15, that points to internal competition as well. There is no internal competition if the gospel is the primary cause. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. You'll notice two groups here. The latter do so, verse 16, in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Group one preaches the gospel out of good will, out of good motives. Group two, verse 16, their motivation for witness, we don't understand all of what's going on here. Possibly some have thought these might be individuals who were, so to speak, in charge in Rome before Paul got there, and now that he's in prison, they're excited again that their influence is more important than his. Whatever it is, it's wrong reasons. 
They're emboldened in their witness by his imprisonment and they're happy with the fact that he's been in prison because they are people filled with rivalry and envy and jealousy and they want to run the show. And now Paul's on the sidelines. Hey, let's get busy for the gospel now. Paul's out of the way. They're seeking to promote themselves. But Paul, think about this. That, I mean, that would irritate you, wouldn't it? That'd be like somebody, that'd be like people from our church starting a church two blocks away, people who never cared about the growth of the church, never did anything to see others come to Christ, never did anything to invite anybody to church or do anything to bring anyone to church. They start a church two blocks away, and all of a sudden they're all around the town telling everybody about their church. I mean, wouldn't that irritate you? But Paul says it, what his heart really comes out here. It's not about him. It's about the gospel. And he's so excited about the glory of God being shared as the gospel of Christ is preached, the death and resurrection of the Savior, that he rejoices even in the fact that some are proclaiming the gospel for wrong reasons. You talk about character, and you talk about a true cause. Selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to trouble me while I'm in chains. Whatever the case, Paul still rejoiced. I've shared with you before that parable of the devout priest in the ancient church who was driven into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Every temptation possible was sent the man's way and he was a rock. He stood every temptation. At last, Satan came up with his last strategy and he whispered in the man's ear, your friend has just been named Bishop of Constantinople. And that worked. Seemingly incapable of affecting the man, Satan found his strategy. Jealousy. The priest scowled. His heart was filled with jealous anger. And he became proud. Just a parable but we understand it. And it's something that can happen within our own assembly as well as outside of our own assembly. There can be false motives, but what we need to look at most of all is the dissemination of the gospel. Now that's not to say that we just pretend away problems and we dismiss those who are sharing the gospel in inappropriate ways, which is happening in our culture, in our day. Not to say that we dismiss those things and ignore truth, but it is to say that we should look at the work that churches are doing even when some of the doctrine is false and leading people down wrong roads. We should be thankful that the Word of God is preached. That should be more important to us than simply that everybody agrees with us or that our church grows because we hold to a truer doctrine than another church. That's rivalry. It's contention. And in another way, and I know this is just application rather than flowing directly from the text itself, but I think there is a case in which, to some degree, this spirit can be brought into our own assembly. There can, when, a, when an assembly is not really serving the cause of Jesus Christ, when an individual or a family is really self-oriented, the result is often contention, difficulty between people, because we've lost sight of what the real cause is. So as Paul will go on to challenge these believers in Philippians chapter 2, you've got to get your eyes off of yourself. You need to focus on the cause of Jesus Christ. There's no room for selfish ambition. There's no room for rivalry. 
When you're fighting together in a trench and you're shooting your, your rifle over the trench and the enemy is bearing down on you, you know you're really not going to mind too much when the guy next to you steps on your foot because the guy next to you is also shooting at the enemy and keeping you alive. As a matter of fact, you overlook that and you're thankful for what they're doing because your focus together is on the enemy. It's on the cause. It's on the war. It's on the attack. But when our focus becomes self and we lose sight of the gospel enterprise, we begin to notice when somebody steps on our toes. And all of a sudden it becomes very big as an issue. As a church, we need to grow in this area. And of course, you know I'm not addressing anything in particular here, as I shared with you where this sermon came from today. I'm still discovering some things that are in it. But uh, at any rate, this isn't a a shot at anybody. It's just to say we need to keep this in mind. And And I would say, and I've learned this myself, that when I get most irritated with other believers, most irritated with the ministry, it's when my focus is off of the cause. It's off of the lost. It's off of the growth of God's people. It's off of spreading the glory of God and it's turned to my own glory. And I don't like the way somebody did not appreciate me. I don't like the way somebody criticized this or that. Little steps on the foot that become all important to us. We've got to look up and realize there's an enemy bearing down upon us. And we need to advance the gospel of Christ. And if our focus as a church is there, so many of the little petty differences and petty little problems that all families have will largely evaporate because we'll be looking in the right direction. We'll be looking up, and we'll be looking long, and we'll be looking big, and we will move past the narrow selfishness that plagues our world. Now these rivals, as I mentioned, preached a legitimate gospel. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. I say this simply to make this point. Paul was not somehow incapable of criticizing others, is he? Is very strong words here for those who did not preach the true doctrine. So when he's talking of these others in chapter 1, he's speaking of people who were proclaiming at least the true gospel. And that's where his focus is. And again, I'm deeply disappointed, as you are, with some who proclaim false doctrine and pretend that it is the gospel of Christ. I don't think that we are to ignore that and pretend that away. We're to look, though, at those who do proclaim a gospel of salvation that is accurate biblically, that involves the fact that we are sinners, by nature fallen, in need of Christ who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, who rose from the dead in victory over death, and who is coming again. There are people who may proclaim false doctrine at places who preach that message, and for this message we should rejoice. And I think if we really love the gospel, we will. We are disappointed with much of the tomfoolery and the trickery and the false gospel of 
easy believism that is so prevalent among evangelical churches in our day. We don't stand behind that and we don't support that at all. In fact, some of them have been using the phrase to refer to churches like ours as we are a church on the killing field. And what they mean by that is they need to stomp out the little churches like ours that make such a big deal over doctrine and to move everybody into massive churches where they can really do the job the right way. Well, that really gets me irritated. And I could get very self-oriented and very angry about something like that. What I need to do, though, is say, that's in God's hands. He knows what a good church is. He knows our desires to proclaim true doctrine. And what I need to do is to be faithful to his cause and thank him for those big churches, those churches even that are unfaithful in some ways if they're proclaiming the true gospel of Christ. As we grow in our love for God, I think that the joy we find in the proclamation of the gospel will rise above these two points of opposition. First of all, external opposition from the world. And secondly, internal competition among God's people. If the gospel really matters to us, we will be willing to work through the fear of being faithful to disseminate the gospel, and we will not permit internal squabble or differences with other churches to take away our joy in the fact that the glory of God is being proclaimed. In our relatively safe world, what stops us from rejoicing in the success of the gospel? Is it jealousy? Is it materialism? Is it pride, fear, difficulty, apathy? Is it self-orientation? Newly married Dave and Audrey Bacon joined a group of missionaries at Santo Corazon in the heart of the Bolivian jungle. Their goal was to reach the Ores Indians. They were dangerous. They were a nomadic people. This untamed people group roamed the Bolivian jungles and were notoriously hard to reach with the gospel but they needed Christ, and Dave and Audrey dedicated their new life together as man and wife to the task of reaching them. This takes us back a few years, November of 1944, but Dave joined four other fellow missionaries, journeyed into the jungle in search of these Indians. The men located a camp, but they, the people were fearful, and Dave was speared to death. As he struggled to extract the spear from his body, the other, others among him also came in, and he actually died of a crushed skull. And the four other missionaries that were with him were also killed and buried. You can imagine, I just know of the one wife, but you can imagine what she faced. Audrey began to worry when she heard no word. It would take five years before she learned what had actually happened to her husband. But after many years and the untiring labors of the missionary team, the very man who had speared her husband came to personal faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the, given, for the forgiveness of murder and for the forgiveness of all of his sins. And Audrey forgave that man as Jesus did. 
And sometime later, the descendants of the killers came to faith in Christ as well, some of them. Describing their sorrow over the murders, Audrey is quoted to have said to them, it was worth my husband's death to see It was worth my husband's death to see you come to know Christ. You can't live for self and make that kind of a statement. You can't live for ease and make that kind of a statement. There has got to be a passion in your heart that's bigger than you. That's as big as the glory of God being spread through this world. We may never be privileged to give our lives or our mates for the gospel, but we are reminded by the examples of those who have suffered much and by the examples of those who suffer at this very moment that the joy of participation in the gospel of Christ surpasses any trial we might have to endure in this fallen world in order to experience this joy how far short we fall. But I ask us each, as we allow the Spirit to teach us, do we step over external opposition? Do we see past internal conflict? Do we see ourselves as a community of God's people, chosen as His people to proclaim the gospel of Christ in this world? The only way you can do that is if He rules your heart and you see the real picture. You see the real picture of the glory of God and the reward of heaven so that we can live past self and past what this world can offer and we live and invest our lives in a greater cause. Do you have a greater cause than yourself? If you don't, you live in a small, small world. Come out of it. First of all, if you do not know Christ as Savior, if he's not saved you from your sin, he's not forgiven you, and you know that he's forgiven you, on the basis of his promise to you in the scriptures, then you need to not worry about disseminating the gospel right now. But you need to consider that Jesus is the Lord. That he died to bear your sins, and he rose from the dead. Historically, as witnesses attest, he beat death. And he'll give you life. That's where you must come. If you know him as Savior, then we have got to orient our lives, not to self. We need to make decisions about what we do as a family, about what we do with our children, about how we invest our time and our money and what's important to us and what really counts. What counts is that the glory of God is advanced through our lives. This is a short blip on the time frame, on the, on the scale of time, or timeline. Thank, I'm looking for it here. But it's a short blip, our life. Eternity is forever. We're not here to pad the way in to the gates of heaven. We're here to live for the other side. And in living for eternity... There are joys that he gives us now, joys that are so great, so vast, that we can risk our lives, we can give our relatives lives, 
and we can do so with joy in our heart and say like Audrey, it was worth, did you hear her words? It was worth my husband's life for your salvation. That is a smaller investment than the glory that he has received in heaven and that I will receive in heaven because I'm not living for this life and for its ease. I'm living for a greater cause. That God would give us big hearts, souls that look past this life and my work and my needs and my family and my responsibilities and would look beyond to live a life of love that pours itself out for the greater cause of Christ. If you've not seen his glory, if it's not real to you, you can't live this way. But if you have, and pray that you might more, then we need to give ourselves to something beyond us. We give ourselves to the greatest human endeavor that is available today the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, and the growth and development into the likeness of Christ, of God's people. There's joy in that. It's a joy because it moves past looking at our feet in the canoe, and it lifts the eyes to the horizon. It's a joy that moves past self in a life that will end and it looks at God in a life that never will end. Lift your joys. Lift your focus. Let's live for the great cause, which will burst into glory as we meet Christ and make every effort pale in comparison. Every effort will pale in comparison. Let's bow for prayer.